pleasure to be speaking with you this morning in uh, Thomas's stead. Uh, thanks a lot, Bruce. Says it's going to be kind of a good cop, bad cop morning. <laughs> a good pastor, bad pastor. Uh, we are talking about uh, unity uh, this morning, <clears throat> primarily uh, uh, disunity. And uh, I have to say, I, I have felt with this coronavirus like we have uh, been a little bit uh, adrift out at sea. It has felt a lot like um, like the ship's gone down, in a sense, and we're uh, floating on the ocean, waiting to be reunited with our family and friends. And and uh, in many ways, I, I have felt the uh, I have felt the separation very acutely. And it actually reminds me of a story. Uh, now that I think about it, there was a there was a young man who was out sailing one day, and he was out at sea, and um, and uh, his ship uh, ran into trouble, and he ended up uh, crashing onto a deserted island out in the middle of the ocean, and he was lost for a long time. Family, friends, everybody did searches for him. They couldn't find him, and, and after years and years, they finally found him, and they sent a search party ashore to rescue him, and... and uh, made sure he was okay, and before they departed the island, uh, he wanted to show them how he had survived and how he had lived on the island all those years. And so he took them around and showed them everything, and he showed them his hut that he had built with his own hands. He had crafted it out of bamboo stalks and twine and cut it with rocks and such, and, and then uh, he took them over to another building, and it was his church. And he had built himself a church there on the island. And just before they were leaving the little village, uh, one of the rescuers said, well, what's that other building over there? And he said, well, that's the church that I left. Okay, you'll get it later. Just let it sink in. (laughs) Uh, You know, we laugh at this joke because it sounds a little too familiar, right? A guy alone on an island still finds a reason to leave his old church. Uh, 2,000 years later, we're still, uh, as a church, plagued with disunity, divisiveness, uh, factions, and the like. And uh, I have been in many churches over the years and uh, have even recently, uh, before I came up to Idaho, I, I preached at Hollywood First Baptist. And the church used to have 1,200 people, 1,200 people. Uh, it, was a, it was a marvelous church, big compound, big facility, and, uh, and when I preached there, they only had 40 people. It had been decimated by splits, uh, people leaving, moving out of the area, whatever. Uh, even their former church that we used to attend, uh, it had been uh, the product of two churches, but that had merged, but prior to that, the Baptist church that owned the property, same thing, a church of about 1,200, and uh, they installed uh, men who were well-known in the community, but not very spiritual men, and they put them in leadership positions, and before you knew it, the church went through a series of splits uh, until it was down to less than 200, and at that time, they began looking for a senior pastor, and uh, they found a, a Bible church in the area, and uh, they asked that pastor to come to their church, and he said, well, 
how about instead I come and I bring my whole church? <laughs> and so the two churches merged, and, and that was the start of our old church, Foothill Bible Church. It was, a, it was a merge of two churches. So I tell you all that just to say that division is not something new to the church. Um, disunity, factions, uh, fighting, quarreling, bickering over non-essentials is something that happens um, more often than we like to think. And uh, this morning, what I'm hopeful that we will do is learn a couple of lessons from the failures of, of the church at Corinth. Uh, so if you would, turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And we are going to drop into a little bit of a context here in verse 10. And uh, we'll read down through verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So, again, as I said, we're going to learn two lessons this morning from the failures at Corinth, which I'm hopeful will be able to help us to preserve the unity at Ambassador Bible Fellowship. Uh, church is susceptible to division, disunity, especially in this time we are particularly susceptible to it because we're already split up. And so how do we preserve the unity of God's church that Christ has purchased with his blood? So the first lesson we want to look at is in verse 10. You see that is uh, we must mind our doctrine. You want to write that down? We must mind our doctrine. Verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now, In the original language, this is what's known as a hinna clause. Uh, it's a purpose statement, uh, which means coming off of what he's just said, this is now the reasons for what he has just said. Uh, so there's purpose here. And in fact, there's four purposes, four reasons here in the text as to why Paul is exhorting this church at Corinth. There's four purposes, and uh, he's trying to rid them of the divisions and the factions that have worked their way into the fellowship. So this is not a pleasant letter. This is a letter of correction. And uh, these four reasons in the text are broken into two sections, and there's two in each section. So simply put, the church at Corinth was, was rife uh, with factionalism, with division, with disunity. So Paul is instructing them and instructing their conscience and saying he's exhorting them and binding them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in the name 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the unifying factor for any church is Christ. And so he's calling them back to their faith commitment to him. The first two exhortations are related to doctrine. And uh, Paul, in a sense, gives us here two ways to avoid doctrinal drift. And you want to note these in the text. Uh, The first way to avoid drift is by affirming the same truth. Affirming the same truth. You see uh, in verse 10 again, he says um, that you all agree. That little phrase there, that you all agree. And Paul more than likely means doctrinal confession here. It, It literally says that the same thing you might speak or say. And the idea is that we would all in the church speak or say or confess the same truths about Christ. Uh, There's this idea, uh, most commentaries agree, the idea of, in a sense, uh, agreeing together about the truths that we hold dear. And so apparently this was a needed correction for the Corinthians because they were not speaking the same thing. They were not saying the same thing. They were not in agreement on doctrine as the rest of this letter will prove. The verb here uh, is a present active. In other words, they were all to keep on speaking the same thing, not just once, not just one confession, but an ongoing repeated action, a repeated confession of the same truths. And this is kind of an idiomatic expression from the political world of all places. Uh, And it's ironic because it's the same today, right? There are parties within our political system And these different parties we know very well are at war with one another, uh, yet they all believe in the same system of government. Uh, It's just they see it playing out differently. And so there are factions, there are divisions. They don't all agree on what they say. And the doctrinal confession of the church is the same. It should be that we all agree on the essentials of doctrine and faith but that there's a variety of opinion uh, within that blanket. Now, after this section where Paul addresses the concerns of Chloe's people, you see that there in the text, uh, he's going to begin to address uh, one issue after another in this letter that they have misunderstood from his previous instruction. Right? Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, Over in uh, chapter 12, uh, chapter 15, we get to issues of uh, the resurrection, their misunderstanding, the misuse of spiritual gifts, uh, the misunderstanding of, uh, of eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. And so one issue after another is causing this church to be divided. It's often said in our culture and in the church even today, sadly enough, that that uh, doctrine divides, right? You've probably heard that. We don't, we don't talk about doctrine because that divides. Ironically, the opposite is true. Doctrine is what holds us together, a common confession, a common belief in the same truths. And yet, here in Corinth, we're finding that they are just being ripped apart um, in really quarters, Uh, They are being drawn and quartered um, by their difference of doctrinal confession. 
John Calvin has an interesting statement here, and I think it's worth reading. He says, when divisions are rife in religion, it's bound to happen that what is in men's minds will soon erupt in real conflict. For while nothing is more effective for joining us together, and there is nothing which does more to unite our minds and keep them peaceful than agreement in religion, yet if disagreement has somehow arisen in connection with it, the inevitable result is that men are quickly stirred up to engage in fighting, and there is no other field with fiercer disputes. When the church starts to fight, it's, uh, it's worse than the secular world in many ways. They go for the jugular. Uh, they hold their convictions deeply, and they, um, they often have some of the most embarrassing uh, conflicts um, publicly that we would ever want to see. I read a story once about a church that was having a Christmas dinner and one of the elders was going through the line behind one of the children and one of the children got his slice of ham and the elder went through after him and the elder got upset and threw a tantrum because the child's um, piece of ham was bigger than his. And so the church went into a split over the issue, and it was a public mess, uh, and it belittled the name of Christ to this community, all over an elder's pride about getting a piece of ham that was too small. Now, John MacArthur says, in matters in which Scripture is not explicit, there is room for difference of opinion. And I think that's important for us to remember, because there are some things... Uh, many things in Scripture that are doctrines that we would adhere to, that we would confess, that we would say these are essential doctrines, but there are others that are negotiable. There are others that are not hills to die on, uh, and yet people make them such. And I can't go through an entire list of that now, but, but this is just to speak to your own heart as to, as to say, are the things that I'm holding, are they studied positions or are they um, prideful opinions? And that's, that's the difference. There's, there's studied positions from Scripture and then there's the pride of man that enters into the picture. Christianity allows for diversity in the gray areas, but not on our doctrinal confession what we would say to the unbelieving world, in other words. What is the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? Mormons are lovely people. Some of the nicest people I know. But who do they think Jesus is? Who do they think the Trinity is? How is a person saved? Is it by trusting in their own righteousness? Or is it by trusting in the righteousness of Christ? These are non-negotiables. These are non-negotiable essentials of the doctrines of Christ. The problem with a common old doctrinal confession is that we live in a society that stresses the importance of individualism and self-love, right? We live in a world today where, regardless of your opinion, it's killing people to be isolated and alone, um, 
if they go out in society, they run the risk of contaminating others. And yet the rugged individualism says, I, I have to have my my rights. I have to be able to have the freedom to do what I want. Now, regardless of your opinion on that issue, it, it's just it, it shows the individualism of the church uh, and the society that we live in. This is a, a, an unfortunate downside of the Protestant Reformation. The priesthood of the believer is a great doctrine. Unfortunately, everybody thinks that their, their interpretation of Scripture is the only right one. And so they hold to their guns. They hold fast their, their opinions and they're unwilling to be taught and unwilling to come under the leadership of the church. And so what you get is disunity. You get strife. You get those who seek to divide. One way to avoid doctrinal drift in the church and division is to ensure that we are all affirming the same truths together. That we affirm them and our commitment to those truths together. And the second way to avoid doctrinal drift is to avoid schismatic traps. To affirm the same truths and to avoid schismatic traps. Notice the same verse. He says that there be no divisions among you. This is a second purpose statement here. That there might be no divisions the word for divisions literally here is schisms, schismata in the Greek. And some see this as a result of the first one. If we don't all say the same thing, then there's going to be schisms. But in reality, it could be translated as a simple and. Um, in other words, it's a second purpose, which is how I take it. And so he's saying, um, you say the same things and that there be no divisions. It's not a result necessarily, but it's a second purpose statement. Now it appears that these were not groups that had separated from the fellowship. These were not people who picked up and left the body of believers. These were factions uh, within the church, cliques, cliques within the congregation. Now, we all know what a clique is. It's this little group of people who hold to their own opinions, who, who don't merge with the rest of the congregation. They have very strong opinions about what they do and what they believe. And they kind of refuse to blend in with everybody else. Schisms uh, literally are a, a rending, a tearing, or a fissure. So it's a it's a difference of opinion over over secondary matters, which leads to a, an unnecessary disruption and biblical fellowship. So it's these things are so important to me that I'm willing to separate off from the rest of the body. And this kind of division could be in the same group or in differing parties within the congregation. It's not clear from this verse which one Paul has in mind. But um, based on the language, it looks as though this was already something that was being practiced. And Paul is telling them to knock it off. He's saying, stop it. Now, uh, D.M. Lloyd-Jones, a, a famous uh, biblical commentator, he says, 
People who were agreed about the centralities of the faith, dividing and separating from one another over matters that were not essential to salvation, not absolutely vital. This is always one of the dangers afflicting us as evangelicals. We can be so rigid, so overstrict, and so narrow that we become guilty of schism. We must be very careful to draw this distinction between essentials and non-essentials, lest we become guilty of schism and begin to rend the body of Christ. Uh, I, I tell you, in our day, 25 years ago, there was a, a, a group uh, that was known as uh, Growing Kids God's Way. And uh, some of you older believers may remember this, but essentially it was, um, I mean, the title itself gives it away, right? There's all other ways of parenting, but then there's Growing Kids God's Way, right? This is God's way to grow a child. And so uh, it became uh, an issue even within the church that that if you were not going through this program and you were not raising your children this way, then you would begin to look at the other children and think what sinners they were, you know, and how much better parents we are than they. And there became a, a division within the church over this very issue. Is that a, is parenting an essential doctrine? The, the way in which you raise your child... The methods you use? Is that an essential? Is that what we're going to split over? Another Christian writer says this. He says, Unity is not found in uniformity of thought, but in the fellowship of the Spirit, based on sound doctrine, which, in turn, is predicated on the clear teaching of Scripture. This is why Paul exhorts us to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. The false prophets call for unity based not on scriptural doctrine, but on their, that is the false prophets, claim for authority. Those who insist on fellowship based on sound doctrine are labeled legalists, while the false prophets are the ones imposing unscriptural demands upon those who follow them. And the church today is filled with false prophets. People being called to follow them rather than Christ. Uh, saying they have authority, uh, authority to draw people to themselves. Authority over the scriptures, authority over people's lives, uh, authority to make things that are unbiblical, biblical, and call people to follow them. So what areas of doctrine are negotiable? Have you ever asked yourself that? I was, I remember a story coming out of the uh, Independent Fundamental Churches of America. There was a church that was splitting in Orange County. Uh, and they had relegated eschatology as a secondary position. And so there were some members of the church that were incredibly upset about this and others who were fine with it. And some thought it's a secondary matter and some thought it's a primary matter. And so the church split 
and they had to call in referees from the outside to try to arbitrate. Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is negotiable? And and here's the thing. If one is applying consistency in how they approach the scriptures, the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the scriptures, should we not all come to the same conclusions? Something to think about. You know, clicks within a church, you know, unity is just a very thin veneer at times. If there's clicks in a church, if it's not based on the Spirit's filling and it's not a Spirit-filled church, then, then schisms usually crop up. Pride wells up. And, and schisms are usually a function of pride, not doctrine. Clicks in the church are caused by, by personal preferences, not doctrinal distinctives. And yet they're veiled behind the mask of doctrine. We had a, a, a group of folks that were what we called the ultra conservatives. And they, they were using incorrect hermeneutics to understand certain passages. And so essentially the girls all had long hair and they would only wear long skirts and only wear flat shoes. Uh, and the men all wore blue, you know, blue slacks and white shirts and blue ties. Uh, and, and that was it. And no drums on stage. They had a particular issue with drums. And so there was this ultra conservative group of people who essentially dominated the church. They were what we call professional weaker brothers uh, because they would they would always throw out the defer to the weaker brother when in fact they were the ones that were the weaker brother. So this issue of pride and personal preference can can factionalize a church. It can split it. It can cause just no end to problems of disunity because people hold on to their personal preferences, not biblical doctrine. If we're to protect the unity of the church, we need to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the things that should mark a believer. And in that is a deference to one another. It's a willingness to sacrifice for the good of our brethren, not to entrench ourselves in our positions uh, and win at all costs. It's all too easy for us to section off with people who share our opinions. Uh, on non-doctrinal issues. And when we do that, what happens is we form cliques in the process. And uh, cliques are impenetrable by the outside world. So new people coming into the church, they, they come in and they hit a wall because they don't feel welcomed into the fellowship. They, they feel the distance between members of the body.
And these folks coalesce around things like personality, um, education of their children, preferences in dress, uh, movie choices, whether or not you even watch movies. And there's usually a disgruntled group or individual at the center of it all. Are these biblical doctrines that they're entrenched in? Have they coalesced around a unity of the spirit and the gospel and of Christ? Are they in Christ or or are they holding to something else that is causing separation? I'll tell you, one of the dangers that can happen in a church plant, and this may ring true for you, is that as as people come to the church, they often say, well, I'm from here and I'm from there. And so you get these groups of people within the church that are from other churches, rather than everybody saying, we're of Ambassador Bible Fellowship. We're of Christ, uh, instead of uh, we're from this church. And this is how we used to do it there. Uh, And so you can develop these factions if we're not all here. It's just something to be aware of. You know, doctrine doesn't kill churches. Clicks kill churches. Doctrine doesn't kill churches. Pride kills churches. Selfishness kills churches. Schisms kill churches. So my exhortation is the same as Paul's, that you all would agree, that you would speak the same thing, that you would know the gospel, that you would live the gospel, that you would share the same gospel, and that there would be no divisions among you. We must mind our doctrine. Secondly, second lesson we need to learn from the failures at Corinth is we must mend our differences. He says in verse 10, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. The verb here to be made complete is a perfect verb again, and it carries the idea of an action that is stands as having been completed. In other words, and is being used in combination here with a verb of being, which is a subjunctive. And I know that means nothing to you, so I'm going to explain it. <laughs> what it's communicating is that, is that something might happen altogether. In other words, uh, that they might become and stand uh, completed as being mended together. And, and so this idea to be made complete is this idea that they might become mended together that they would attain to what God has done in their lives in a corporate sense, that they would stop all this division and fighting and quarreling and that they would come together as one. There's an old expression in the military, an army divided is an army conquered. This verb uh, being mended is used in Matthew 4.21 with the idea of mending fishing nets. So you get the idea of that picture there. It's used over in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 in a moral sense. And it's used, oddly enough, in secular literature of the day 
as a, a setting of bones, mending broken bones. And so the idea here is Paul is asking that they would be perfected, they would be mended, they would be healed, they would be restored in two areas. And the first of these areas is in mind. And this describes the state of mind or their frame of mind to start with. And I can't help but think of Philippians 1.27 uh, and following over there. So I'm going I'm to turn over there. This is not my usual Bible, sorry. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, the, the uh, Philippian church was experiencing, there, there was trouble going on in the church because Paul was in under house arrest. Uh, the church had sent a large sum of money over to Paul to help him out. They had even sent their, their pastor Epaphroditus over to minister to him. And so there's this this church and Paul is writing to them and the anxiety levels are ratcheting up. Uh, and and they're starting to quarrel, and they're starting to fight. And so Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he's going to take this idea of the mind, and he's going to he's going to call them to unity throughout the rest of this letter. We see it over in 2.2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. See that? Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Over in verse 5. Have this attitude or mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6 who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ emptied himself in mind first, humbled himself, and then assumed the posture of a servant. And this is what Paul is calling the Corinthians to, that they would have the same mind, the same mind or attitude that Christ had. The other thing he's calling them to unity over or to mend is uh, their judgment. You see the word judgment there, nome in the Greek. And this is actually the word opinion or sentiment or judgment, which is the outcome of their state of mind. So you could say their convictions. And these are further explained in the verses that follow. And what I'd like to like to talk about here is is really two reasons for disunity. Uh, What the text reveals to us, two reasons why mending doesn't take place. What's keeping the mending from happening? When a bone gets broken, you can't walk on it. It has to rest. It has to reset. It has to heal before you can use it. And so Paul is here explaining to them why the bone isn't healing, why they're not healing. And the first reason for disunity is following a man. Verses 11 to 13. He says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. 
Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And this is the source. This is the source of the quarrels. This is what they're saying. I'm of this man or I'm of that man. They're playing follow the leader, right? Follow the leader in the church. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with saying uh, you're of Christ. Obviously, that's not the problem. The problem is that each person has their party leader within the church, the one that they're identifying with, and they're playing partisan church politics over which leader they think is more superior. So saying I'm of, of, of Paul, uh, since he was the one that founded the church, the great apostle to the Gentiles, right? Uh, some were identifying with him, the, the learned man, the apostle Paul, who studied, studied under Gamaliel, the church planter of Christendom, the apostle, right? He ended up writing close to two-thirds of the New Testament. So when you want him as your teacher, right? When you want to be identified with Paul. And there were others that were saying they were of Apollos. And Paulus was from Alexandria. He was an eloquent speaker. Uh, you look over at Acts 18. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, uh, was not so much of an eloquent speaker. He was kind of a funny little looking guy. He had bow legs, a pointy nose, bald on top, from what I'm told. Secular history tells us. You look at 1 Corinthians 2.1, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10, the Athenians called the Apostle Paul a seed picker. When he was preaching at the church of Athens, they called him a seed picker, meaning he, he took pieces of other people's doctrine and he put it all together. He was a seed picker. You know, Apollos got so fed up with the church at Corinth that he went, you know, he, he got such a taste of the internal strife over the preferred preaching preferences that what he did was he ended up going over to Ephesus and he never went back to Corinth. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians 16:12. He left and never went back. There were some that were saying I'm of Peter, right? The the uh the first pope. <laughs> no. Cephas, Peter, it appears that there there really was no discord between Peter and Paul. But you'll remember that over in the book of Galatians chapter 2, when Paul essentially was the only one uh, on the issue of table fellowship who was willing to stand his ground and eat with Gentiles. Even Peter caved in. And so the Judaizers were following Paul around and they were setting up this false dichotomy, this false um, quarrel between Peter and Paul that really didn't exist because of that rebuke of the Apostle Peter in Antioch. So apparently these Judaizers attacked Paul because of their defeat at the Jerusalem Council, if you look at Acts chapter 15. These Judaizers, they followed Paul around and they made his life miserable. Some people think that was even his uh, thorn in the flesh that he was describing was the Judaizers. 
So they followed along behind Paul all the way to Corinth and they stirred up strife there between he and Peter by forming this third faction within the church. So here we have this faction. We have those of Paul. We have those of Apollos. We have those of Cephas. And they're using Peter's name to pass themselves off as the the ultra-conservative right-wing party within the church. And you can almost taste the dissension, right? You can almost feel it. And then there are some that are saying, I'm of Christ. Notice they're not saying, I'm in Christ. (laughs) They're saying, I'm of Christ. Meaning a fourth faction. And this crowd was claiming allegiance to Christ with a, a spiritually proud sort of utterance like, yeah, you guys may be of those other guys, but I'm of Christ. And it's possible that this partisan use of the name of Christ may have been with a desire for unity against the other three factions, that they may have coalesced together just to fight against these other factions. So we don't really know, but by dragging Christ's name into the mix, well, verse 13, he gives them three rhetorical questions that, that are meant to prick the conscience, right? Questions prick the conscience, accusations harden the heart. So here are the questions. Has Christ been divided? And they would all expect a no answer. It's another perfect verb. Does Christ stand as divided? Are you kidding me? Is this what Christ purchased with his blood? Has the unity of the church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, is it it's impossible, yet you're tearing him apart with your partisan politics? What about the second question? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? He's saying, I didn't hang on that cross for you. I'm not the one that redeemed you. I'm not the God-man. This is very strong in the Greek, by the way. Paul says, not Paul was crucified on behalf of you. It's almost the indignant. (laughs) There's a sense of offense in it. Or this final phrase, final question, were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, Matthew's gospel would have been written already by this time. So they would have had that baptismal formula at the end of Matthew. So are you baptized in the name of the Father And the Spirit and Paul? You can answer how you would say, uh, may it never be, right? May it never be. Would you put Paul on the same level as the Trinity? There's an old Puritan writer. His name is Richard Sibbs. He says, factions always lead to fractions. I like that. Factions within the church always lead to fractions. They always split. You know, we live in a day and an age where there's the the rock star preachers, right? Rock star preachers on YouTube. 
Even some claiming to be apostles. Pulling people away from from the church. Drawing disciples unto themselves. Popular people. Yet who do not affirm the same truths as we do. See, people follow the man rather than Christ and his word. The eloquence of the preacher. The influence of his opinions. The lack of a hot preaching style. We're thinking ourselves more spiritual than others. All lead to factions within the body of Christ. And this only leads to, to continued disunity, a lack of harmony within the church. It, it kills the church's mojo, if I could say it that way. It draws energy away from the essential mission of the church. We're not all pulling together in the same direction. We're not all speaking the same thing. We're not all after the same goal and the same prize. We're split. Split up the middle. Split in every different direction. It dishonors God and it cripples the church's effectiveness. Our tendency is to follow the man rather than become people of the word ourselves. And work at developing the unity of the body of Christ rather than tearing it apart. So we follow the man. It's one reason for disunity. Second is forgetting the mission. Forgetting the mission. Verses 14 to 17. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ, here it is, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should not be made void. What's the mission of the church? To preach Christ and him crucified. And we are to baptize, but that was not what Paul had been called to. Paul had been called to preach the gospel. For Paul, this was his sole mission. And you could even say it was his soul's mission. It was the preaching of the gospel and the foolishness of the cross, not baptism. Paul is not a baptizer like John. John was a baptizer. And there's a very strong contrast here. Not he sent me, Christ, to baptize, but to proclaim good news. That's all one verb, to gospelize. To gospelize. He was sent by Christ, commissioned by him for this one purpose. To preach the gospel. And the word sent, by the way, is the word apostello. It is the word for apostle. He was sent by Christ. And Paul knew that if people came to faith because of the cleverness of his speech, rather than because of the foolishness of the cross, then their faith would have been built upon nothing but a personality cult. 
They would have followed after Paul, the person, rather than the message of the gospel. It's not an eloquence of speech. It is the simple truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's several implications of this text, and and the first is this, that the church needs to learn from Paul to stay on mission. You know, there are a lot of things that could distract us. There are a lot of things that are good to do. But is it the mission of this church? Is it the mission of the church? Our goal should not be to entertain people, to get them to come to our church because of all the bells and whistles, but to preach the gospel in all of its fullness. To preach the gospel. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The foolishness of the cross, the resurrection, Everything contained in the doctrines of salvation. There are a lot of things that could distract us, but the church needs to focus on its primary mission. An ambassador Bible fellowship, beloved, is a church plant. It is a church plant, and that is its primary focus is to to create a gospel witness here in this community. The second implication I could say would be to be aware of preachers that know how to work the crowd. I can't stop you from watching YouTube. I can't stop you from going to concerts or or to listening to other preachers. But many today are like the Pied Piper. And they simply lead the masses astray. And they're clever in their speech. But that's all that characterizes their ministry. Not the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of me. Right? I hate to name names, but I'm going to. But I I recently saw Kenneth Copeland on TV. The guy's a millionaire. And he wasn't just asking for one airplane from his congregation. He was asking for two and and he was recently seen rebuking COVID-19 and telling it to go back into the darkness from where it came. Like he has any kind of authority or power to do such things. But people follow him and they watch his show on TV and he has millions of followers and they send him all kinds of money and he's simply leading them astray. The blind leading the blind. The third important, I think, personality cults are a very real danger in the church. There are people with very strong personalities who get into a congregation and they just draw people to themselves. 
Have you ever seen a magnet with like metal shavings? The, the metal shavings just suck to the magnet. It's kind of what it's like. They, they get into a congregation and it's been this way for 2,000 years. Still alive and well today. Personality cults. They, they get into a congregation and they, people are attracted to them and they follow after them and they listen to pretty much anything they say as the gospel truth. And, and they get people to follow them and their opinions rather than the gospel and Christ. And notice when you go through your New Testament that Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they all deflected attention away from themselves. They didn't want it. Don't worship us. Worship Christ. Worship Christ. Deflect. Deflect the attention away from self. Personality cults are not like that. They want you to follow them. And I will say this too, but fourth on the list here, what what causes quarreling in the church is a lack of common mission. James four, one to three, what are the what are the sources of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not your desires that wage war in your members? Right? You lust and you cannot have, so you commit murder. James hit the nail on the head. Our seminary professor uh, told a story of the guys that would go hunting raccoons out in the out in the south, right? Coon hounds. They'd put the coon hounds in the back of the truck and they'd drive them out there. And, and all the while the coon hounds are in the back of the truck, they're tearing each other to pieces until they get to where they're going and they drop the gate and the coon hounds go after the coons, right? And, and his, his illustration was meant to prove the point that if the church doesn't have a common thing to go after, they will tear each other to pieces, They will fight. They will quarrel. They will divide over no reason at all. The simplest of things become big. So what is the mission of the church? Well, the church should be about the mission of church planting. That was Paul's mission. That was the mission of the early church. And it means planting a gospel witness in a place where there isn't one. Not entertaining not getting people to be like us, not clever speaking, not speaking engagements, but planting churches, gospelizing, making disciples, making disciple makers, and a witness for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It means reproducing ourselves in others, in the lives of others. And ultimately, all of that leads to more worshipers. That's really the reason why we're here, isn't it? To worship God, to worship Christ. So the goal in making more disciples is that there would be more worshipers that would worship God. It was John Piper who said, missions exist because worship doesn't.
In order to mend disunity in the church, it, it needs to remember its mission in the world. Why does the church exist? Not why does this church exist. Why does the church exist? And the church needs to coalesce around its primary purpose for existing. And that is God's glory, not ours. So let me just say it's, it's always my hope um, that the church might learn from the mistakes of the past and not repeat them. You know what the definition of craziness is, right? It's doing the same thing over again, over and over again, and expecting a different result. My hope is that we would learn from the mistakes of the past and not repeat them. So my hope is that we have learned these two lessons from the failures at Corinth. I pray for our church here that we would mind our doctrine and we would mend our differences so that the unity of this church would be strengthened in Christ to the glory of God our Father. May God grant us the grace to walk in humility and to preserve the unity of his church, which Christ purchased with his blood. Then we might walk in a manner worthy of the high calling with which we have been called. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about God's glory.